You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. Uh, there were a couple championship games this past Sunday, and we'll get into those very soon. Tom Brady, the greatest of all time, has decided to hang it up. Wow, we've got some coaches hired. A bombshell of a lawsuit's been thrown out. And gosh, I mean, the Super Bowl's coming up, and here we're talking about all this other stuff. But let's get right to the top. The championship games, a couple of implosions by our respective teams, Alex. I don't even know where to start. The Chiefs game, you know, they come out and they're playing the way they've played the last few weeks. And then, inexplicably, at the end of the first half, they kind of fumbled the last few seconds, actually, because they got the ball right down the field inside of a minute. And I think the play that I think goes down to just get in Mahomes' head, everything just changed. I mean, you could just feel it. You know, the Bengals had scored to get it to 21 to 10. It would have been down 21 to 3. And here we go. Maybe the Chiefs kick a field goal 24 to 10, or they get the touchdown. But none of that happens. Mahomes, again, just shockingly throws the ball inbounds with no timeouts. And wow, I, I think that play just stayed in his head the second half. He never rebounded. He kind of reverted to playing hero ball that he was doing at the beginning of the year. I don't know what you say, Cincinnati. Maybe they changed up their offense, but the Chiefs did not run the ball as much as you think they would have. But I don't know. I mean, what what was your takeaway from just that second half? I agree with you. The turning point was that play with five seconds left uh, before the half because if the Chiefs don't blow it, and I'm not going to put it all on Mahomes. I think it's the entire coaching staff as well. Yeah. Like Andy yep. Reid, EB, all right? They fumbled that because they should have walked away at least with a field goal. If the play isn't there, you throw that ball away and you take a field goal, you know, with two or three seconds left on the clock and you go up, you know, 24 to 10. I mean, that's huge. You go up by two touchdowns. It seems like teams are just not valuing the field goal anymore. Like three points matters. Because that's what they lost by. I think the Bengals' defense adjusted in the second half. Because, Lou, he was 8 for 18 for 55 yards with two interceptions after the half. The Bengals dropped like 8-plus men in coverage on like half of their defensive sets in the second half. They just played it differently. They couldn't cover Tyreek Hill. Like in the first half, he was just running wild and making those big plays and just, it seemed like nobody could cover him. But in the second half, they adjusted. They took it away. They dropped everyone back. And that confused the hell out of Mahomes. I don't think he adjusted. I don't think the coaching staff adjusted. It's almost like the same problem that they had during the Super Bowl last year, Lou. Like, they didn't expect it, and they didn't do anything about it, even though they had, like, two full quarters to adjust in the second half. But they still stuck to their game plan. And slowly but surely, the defense kind of made some plays for the Bengals. Two interceptions, obviously. And then Burrow caught fire as well. I mean, he got going in the second half. So hats off to the Bengals because 
Who would have seen this coming, Lou? The Bengals in the Super Bowl in the beginning of the season? Are you kidding me? They were 1-4, like, to start the season. Nobody had them in the playoffs. It's just, it's an amazing turnaround. Yeah, God bless him, you know, for Burrow, the second-year guy, being more, and we'll talk about him, you know, in a, in a few minutes, more Brady-like. He took what the defense gave him. He wasn't forcing it to Jamar Chase because they were doubling him all over the field. So T. Higgins kind of stepped up and, and did his thing. But Burrow never really forced anything. And Mahomes did. And like you said, the coaching staff never adjusted. But it was very similar to the second half when they were in Cincinnati, where, again, they were getting like five, six yards of crack running the ball. And not to say that all of a sudden you're going to change your entire DNA and become a running team, but my God, you know, Jarek McKinnon and, and Edward Zolaire, when they did get to their opportunities, were doing really well. And again, the in-game adjustments are just, just infuriating because they always came too slow. And in that game, it seems like they never did. And then at the end of regulation, when they were at the 10-yard line with a chance to win the game, during the regular season, every time they got close, there'd be some different wrinkle that Reed had come up with during the course of the year, whether it was, you know, Kelsey behind center or whatever, or, you know, they're dropping eight. Hey, let's try, maybe we try to power the ball with those big guards in center right, you know, right through the middle of the field. Tooney and Smith and Creed Humphrey because we've been blowing it up. Let's try that. But again, they they put Mahomes in some bad positions. But again, ultimately, he has the ball in his hands and it's up to him because every play you could probably find somebody that did get open. There was a couple of plays at the end where it just seemed like something got in his head because Kelsey flashes right across it. You'd think it would have been, it would look like an easy touchdown. He doesn't throw it. Pringle coming back. From the back of the end zone to the front, got position. He was open, didn't throw it. God bless him. The Bengals, uh, they did what they had to do. But gosh, you just hate to see these opportunities kind of almost pissed away by some bad decisions on, yes, the coaching staff's part, but then ultimately the guy with the ball in his hands because he just had such a terrible terrible second half i wanted to ask you about this eb's contract expires do you think the chiefs are just gonna let him go this is a a a really poignant thing that you're bringing up because i think mike kafka is interviewing for the giants oc position i don't think you want to let this kid out of the building because i think you know there's a little bit more creativity there and say what you will about the enemy but it's been a few years and if he is in reed's ear right, during these games and whatever, and he's coming up with things, adjustments and so forth, we're not seeing it on the field. So I think they thought for sure that he was going to get a job this year. And again, they might be taken a little bit off guard and might let Kafka get out of the building. And that would be a shame because, you know, younger guy, bright guy, I think he's on a on a good path. So this is going to be interesting to see what happens because you'd think if they wanted to keep the enemy that you know the extension would have been done. There's no salary cap, you know, on coaches contracts. I don't know. It's all going to come down to to how much they value Kafka versus the enemy. I don't know. I I wish I could tell you I wish I had some information but I don't. Well, you sound like a frustrated Chiefs fan. I'm also a frustrated 49ers fan after watching the Rams finally 
overcome, you know, like McVeigh was able to defeat, you know, Kyle Shanahan finally in grand fashion. You know what was really frustrating is that the defense just ran out of gas. Like for three quarters, the 49ers defense, and you can make this case that the 49ers defense has carried this team in the playoffs, basically. And they just ran out of gas in the fourth quarter. They just couldn't get that stop. And the Rams just were able to, you know, get a touchdown, get a field goal, and then, you know, overcome that 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. And obviously when the pressure is on, when you blitz Jimmy G, he folds under pressure and there is a reason why he is going to leave and get out of the building and they will finally, you know, start their second year man in Trey Lance next year. I mean, he did have the ball in his hand a lot in the second half, which again was a little surprising. You had those closers, I guess, you know, Von Miller started to pick up the pace near the end of the game. You didn't hear much from 99, you know, I mean, for most of the game, but again, when the Money was on the table, so to speak. I mean, he kind of stepped up big. Cooper Cup did his thing. Stafford tried to throw it away, and just my heart bleeds for him, especially at the time, and for you as well, when Tart dropped that pass that was surefire interception. I don't know. I mean, there's still plenty of time left in the game, but my goodness, if they make that interception, <laughs> you know, how mu- how much different could this game have been? You just hate to see teams kind of lose the game. Yes, the Rams made the plays. You know, Bengals made the plays they had to. Don't take anything away from them, but it's just so disheartening to see like a team kind of almost crumble a little bit at, at the end and it was it was just hard to watch obviously you know I thought the Niners were, were going to win the game but yeah ultimately they, they needed somebody behind the center that was going to be able to make some plays and it just didn't look like it was ever going to happen yeah there's nothing I could say like obviously I mean it would have been different if Tarrant catches that interception those are the plays that kind of hurt you in the end and were the deciding factor of This is the reason why the Rams are going to be playing in their home stadium in the Super Bowl, just like they wanted it when McVay traded for Stafford. Hey, they got their wish, so now they're going to be the the favorites versus the Bengals. The greatest of all time has decided to hang them up. Uh, The story was leaked earlier in the weekend before the games, and I'm sure was not intended by Brady's camp. I'm sure he didn't want to upstage the playoff games or anything like that. But ultimately, this is it. He's done. I mean, in our lifetimes, I don't know that we're going to see a greater career, a greater winner in this league. Uh, Somebody to come from kind of middle of the pack at best during his college days and getting drafted and just rising to the top of the league. And maybe not just this sport, but maybe some other team sports as well. You know, there's going to be a, a ton of moments that you look at. You can't look back and say, well, there there was a signature throw or there was a signature this or that. What I'll remember, when not a particular throw, but just the fact that he was able to find your weakness and then beat you over the head with it time and again until you made some sort of adjustment. And in a lot of cases, inexplicably, those adjustments never came. But he would just take what the defense would give him and just, again, bludgeon you over the head until he came out on top. There's a big 
I guess, lesson to learn here is that style points don't matter, that whatever it takes to win, if he's got to hand off 50 times, he's going to do that. If he's going to throw to the backs quickly, he's going to do that. If he's got to take shots downfield, he's going to do that. And the, the best thing about him is he was able to do each of those very efficiently, meticulously, precisely, obsessed with minor details but the bottom line is he was just a winner it was hard to watch because in so many cases he was beating somebody that I wanted him to lose to but you know really looking at it objectively you can't say really much more than just a winner and did it better and was obsessed with it more than anybody else so here you go hats off to Brady it was great to watch but uh, I guess somebody else will get a chance now I thought he was going to play till he was about 50 years old. I didn't think this day would come. I mean, he keeps himself in great shape, and he's obsessed, and he wants to keep winning. And I have a lot of respect for the guy because a lot of people kind of labeled him as a system quarterback with the Patriots, and then he left the Patriots, and in his first season, at like 43 years old, low, he wins a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks, and I think that's when you start to appreciate him a little bit more. And with the Bucks, he had more weapons combined in that one season than he had in all of his seasons with the Patriots because there was only a time when he had Randy Boss for two years and they set all types of records, but he never had those like big-time guys like Julian Edelman, okay, Wes Welker, okay, Gronkowski. I mean, you, you got to give it to him, but he never had like the full array of weapons like some of these other guys have or had and they didn't win as many Super Bowls as him look the best quarterback that I saw before that was Joe Montana because he just he was so cerebral and he picked you apart and I was able to watch him play when he was still you know with the 49ers but Tom Brady is the GOAT he is the best of all time he's up there with the Mount Rushmore of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant you got to put him like at a different level Great respect for the, like you said, the ultimate winner. Well, he played in the Super Bowl almost every other year. You know, 10 times in 22 years. Just uh, just the greatest winner of NFL history. I thought it was interesting when he finally did put out his statement, Instagram posts, and so forth, that uh, the Patriots weren't really mentioned in it. Not Kraft, not Belichick, really not at all. And then after the fact, he, I think he, he retweeted uh, something that the, the Patriots statement that Kraft had put out. So I, that was weird. I mean, at some point, I'm sure he'll do something because of these this production company that he has and just how on fire his uh, social media team has been since he's gone to Tampa. That was a little bit strange that uh, they they really weren't mentioned when it was, you know, for 20 of those years he played in New England. But hey, you know, there's a little bit of petty in there. I'm sure he wasn't uh, real happy with the way things ended up. And anyhow, he's done. And looking at the NFC now, if Rodgers somehow gets dealt to Denver, you know, NFC quarterbacks, Russell Wilson, what if, what if he gets dealt to the Raiders or, you know, some of these guys move on? NFC quarterback hierarchy is going to be a, a mess. Kyler Murray, you know, Stafford, you got our, our boy in Dallas, Dak Prescott. So it, it, it should be interesting. But uh, anyway, we do have a uh, prospect chat coming up. So let's go to him right now. Joining us now is a running back for the Boston College Eagles, pride of only Maryland, number 23, Travis Levy. Travis, welcome to Pros Like Us. 
Hey, how y'all doing? Doing well, man. Right off the top, I mean, running backs come in all shapes, sizes, and styles, right? Which skills do you feel will help get you to the next level? Well, throughout my season, I was primarily a third down back. And um, I really was able to mold myself within this position. Um, you know, I'm catching routes out the backfield. I'm picking up blitzes and stuff like that. And then being a third down back, I'm also one of the elite special team guys in the conference. And, you know, I was returning kicks, returning punts, and, you know, making plays on kickoff and punts. So all the skills that I learned throughout college, you know, I'm looking forward to, to using that within the league, whether it's that third down back position or a core special teams guy. Are there any other positions you played? I mean, obviously you played running back throughout college, but the prior to college, any other position flexibility you have? Yeah, um, in high school I played, uh, I was a safety, I was a linebacker at one point. Even times I played receiver. And then even in college, uh, my junior year, I actually played receiver for that season. How'd that feel, playing receiver? Uh, receiver is definitely different from running back. I remember it was a big transition for me. It's just a whole different space um, within the field that, you know, I'm playing from. And it took me a little bit to adjust, but once I finally got it, you know, I, I, I just excelled at it. So it taught me how to play game from inside the box and moving a receiver taught me how to play from outside the box. Well, it seems to have helped Debo Samuel a little bit. So, I mean, I'd study up on his tape. Is there a particular scheme or a situation that would be the best fit for your skill set? Yeah, whether that's needing the big special team stop or big return within the return game or kick return or being a key third down asset, whether that's running route out the backfield and, you know, creating matchups on linebackers and stuff like that is where really why I excel at when those opportunities present themselves within, you know, the league and stuff like that. All right, Travis, you're coming off a Tropical Bowl experience. It's an all-star game that took place in Florida. It was a big event. It was held in Camping World USA Stadium. You guys played in, in front of a huge crowd. Tell us about that experience. How did that go for you? The Tropical experience was just a great experience um, and and after you're done playing college football, you're like, it's kind of like a whole transition period for you to start getting ready for the, the NFL or the league or whatever you're trying to do. And, you know, the Tropical Bowl really gave me that opportunity to like let me know that this chance is there. It helped me also transition myself into more of a pro mindset. I was just down there by myself. I got to be at certain places on time, you know. I got to eat right so I can win right. And then I also got to fuel myself for practice and then I got to perform and stuff like that. So it was just a great opportunity for me to just help me uh, become more of a pro within my process. What was it like being surrounded by other guys who are in the same position as you who are trying to catch on in the NFL? It was just an eye-opening experience because actually to the guys who were down there, um, I played high school football with, I worked out with them here in Maryland. We kind of didn't get the opportunities that we wanted in college, but you know what, we're down here at this tropical bowl trying to excel and show the scouts what we can really do. So it was just a great opportunity to be around those guys who have the same hunger and drive that I do. 
What type of feedback did you receive from NFL teams and scouts that were down there? Did you receive a lot of positive news? Yeah, I received a lot of positive news. I talked to a lot of scouts. But, you know, I asked the scouts, like, one of the main questions I had was, what does it take to really stay in this league? What, what does it take to really, you know, excel, make this a career? All the feedback I got from the scouts is uh, learning how to be a pro and uh, really separate yourself on special teams, just doing all the extra little things within the game. You know, that's what I've been trying to do right now in order to give me that opportunity. All right, talk to us about your uh, training right now, just what you go through daily and what's the training facility that you're at right now? So I'm training in Maryland. I'm training in Maryland at Gibson Performance Training, and it's run by uh, Mo Gibson and his brother, uh, Chris Gibson. Both of the guys have really trained top talents like Saquon and Chase Young and Marshawn Lloyd, who, who's at South Carolina right now. And, you know, they trained a lot of guys who have been in my position. One of the reasons I stuck with training with them is because you know, I trained with him through high school. I, I trained with him through college, and I just felt like he was going to be the best opportunity for me to be focused, really take this next step serious. The process of the training starts with, you know, I wake up at like 7 a.m. just to make sure I have, uh, you know, I'm fueled for a workout. I have breakfast, and then we get to the facility, and we're, we're stretching. We do like a 30-minute stretch, and then, you know, we're in the workout process. After the workout process, we do normal tag. We do, I hop in a cold tank and uh, just get ready for the next day. On the weekends, it's really our rest day, um, Saturday and Sunday. On Saturday, I do yoga just to keep flexibility within everything that we're doing. What's been the toughest part? Just uh, adjusting to this, I call it pro day training. Has it been difficult for you to work on those 10 yard splits for those 40 times? Has it been, you know, difficult in terms of just the uh, field drills that you're doing with your uh, positional coaches out there? What's been uh, the most difficult part for you? Yeah, probably the most difficult part is since I'm in Maryland and, you know, I'm not down in a place like where it's warm, it's kind of cold outside. So all, all the stuff that we're doing is really inside. So I can't really, you know, open up on my routes how I want to open up because uh, the space is kind of confined. But, you know, we're still catching like 100 balls to 200 balls a day. That was probably the biggest, the biggest problem because being in such a cold climate, it's hard to get outside and, you know, open up and run and catch balls and stuff like that. So why did you choose to stay with them? Obviously, you mentioned that you trained with them throughout high school. So you're very familiar with their mm -hmm. style. Why didn't you decide to pack up your bags and go to California or Arizona or Texas or Florida? Why did you stay at home? I stayed at home because I really trust my, my trainer. Strength and conditioning trainer is Mo Gibson. And um, I really trusted him. I wanted to be his first pro day um, prospect for real. Because he, he worked with Chase Young, but Chase Young didn't do his pro day or his combine. And he worked with Saquon after he did his combine and, and pro day and stuff like that. So I wanted to be his first pro day prospect coming out to give him that exposure because he's been, he's been so good to me. He, he's done so many things for me. I just knew whenever me and him are going to be working is real work. Everything is locked in. It's that one-on-one -on -one personalized work. Everything is detailed out. 
my nutrition, my sleep, hydration, uh, I'm weighing in every day. Everything's detailed out onto pro day. And I knew if I went down into Florida or something like that, I don't think I would have had that one-on-one personalized experience that, you know, I, I really wanted. That was the only reason I felt like this decision was the best decision for me all around. All right, let's go back a little bit. Find out why you chose to go to Boston College coming out of high school. Did you have any other offers and why the Eagles? Coming out of high school, at one point I was blowing up kind of. I was getting offers left and right. But Boston College came around and it was my first, really third big power five offer I had at Vanderbilt. And then we were talk- I was talking to Penn State. Took a visit up to Boston College and I really walked around the campus, also understood the education aspect of what the school brought. Those two things, the campus and the education and the opportunity in general, really helped me make my decision to be with Boston College. At the time, they only had, like I think, three running backs in the room. So, you know, I, I wanted to play as a freshman. I knew this would be an opportunity as well. And I also wanted to play in the ACC. I wanted to play Clemson. I wanted to play, you know, have an opportunity to play Notre Dame. I wanted to play uh, Miami. I wanted to play teams like that. That's really why I chose uh, BC. So you're there four years, got your degree. You know, with running backs, it seems like, you know, if you have any ability at all, it's like you want to get to the league as fast as possible. You know, but you chose to come back for an ex- the extra year that was afforded to you. What led to that decision and how difficult was it? It was a really difficult decision. Um, I sat down and talked with uh, the coaches there now, uh, Coach Halfley, and we really sat down and he really painted a picture for, for me of why I should come back. And one of the reasons was, you know, it would be my second year in offense. I'll also be coming back working with one of the best strength staffs in the country. And I will be able to put on more strength and more weight. You know, I would just have another opportunity to uh, show scouts what I can do. You know, I really looked at that COVID year as like, you know, a blessing. A lot of guys didn't have an opportunity to come back when they went through four years, playing four years. And this COVID year was just like a blessing. It gave me another opportunity. And I was just really excited. And I also wanted to spend, you know, another year with the guys and just have fun with that opportunity. You hear about these institutions of higher learning, but, you know, Vanderbilt, BC, I mean, these are, I mean, you got to be a pretty smart dude to get into any of those schools. What would you say is your lasting memory from Boston College, both on and off the field? On the field will probably be three seasons ago, uh, college game day at our house and the atmosphere was just crazy. It was electric. You know, one of the reasons why we were able to play Clemson in that college game day game is because I basically put the team on back against Virginia Tech and scored two touchdowns in order to go up against Virginia Tech, which gave us the opportunity to play Clemson, which was just a great memory in general. I always remember that. Off the field, you know, one of my, uh, Favorite memories is probably just chilling with the guys in the running back room and just talking about what we did over the weekend and just, you know, having fun, just creating relationships within the running back room. You know, those are some of the greatest guys that I've been around and definitely lifelong friends. Okay. Well, obviously, there's been some success there. A.J. Dillon, what do you recall about him? 
Yeah, AJ, he, he's definitely one of my good friends. He really showed me the way on how to, like, <laughs> be a bruiser. I definitely think I got that downhill bruiser mentality from AJ. Just seeing him in practice and then seeing him in the game, that just made me want to run even harder because he was bruising everybody in the ACC, I'll tell you. Well, he's doing it in the NFL as well. Have you gotten any advice from him lately about kind of going through this process? No, I haven't really talked to him, but I've definitely gotten some advice from uh, Chris Lindstrom. He was another guy that good friends, always talk to him. And his brother was actually, we both went in, Alec Lindstrom, we both went into uh, BC the same time. So I was always around Alec and then I was always around Chris. Yeah, Chris just told me, you know, just keep my head down throughout this process and don't take any day for granted, you know, work hard every day. And um, that, that's how Chris was when he was playing. And that's the mentality he, he wants me to have going through this process. Now, how would you describe coach Signetti's offense? Yeah. Coach Signetti, great offensive coach. The scheme that we had was definitely a pro style offense with like a mix of drop back and a mix of, uh, RPO and a mix of various plays that we like to just dazzle in there. It was definitely a true pro-style offense. So from the outside looking in, I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like the running game really fired throughout your career, whether it was a lack of opportunity, any number of things. But just numbers-wise, why do you think that was? I believe my freshman year, I was running behind John Hillman, A.J. Dillon, and then uh, Davon Jones, and then... You know, my, my sophomore year, now I'm running behind A.J. Dillon, and it was me as a second back. But A.J. was the one who's getting most of the carries. Third year, I moved to receiver, so I'm, I'm not really um, running the ball that much within the offense. But I'm, I'm still, you know, one of those key guys that needs to get the ball throughout the game, whether that was freshman year, sophomore year, or junior year. And then my senior year, that's when I really had the opportunity to run the ball as Coach Athlete came in and, and saw the potential. And then uh, this past year, we just had a loaded backfield. You know, we had me, we had Pat Garrow, we had Alex Sinkfield, we had uh, uh, Xavier Colvin. You know, I, I believe I would have had way more opportunities this year if I didn't get banged up as much as I did in the beginning of the season. But, you know, I'm just truly blessed for the opportunities that I had throughout my season. And, you know, I, I don't look at any season as like a downfall or, or I didn't get the ball as much or, you know, I had the opportunities there and I, I made the best of it, which is uh, I'm really grateful for. All right. Tell us about your teammate, your uh, quarterback, Phil Jerkovic. I mean, how would you describe him and what sets him apart from the rest of the guys that play quarterback in the ACC? Phil, he's definitely a gamer. He's definitely one of the funnest guys to be around with. When that clock starts running and it's go time, you know, you can look at Phil. You could look right in his eyes and understand that it's go time. That's the type of person he is. He's going to put everything on the line that he can to, uh, you know, make sure we come out with a W. You know, he, he went down early throughout the season, but, man, I tell you, he was in the training room. He was on the field just doing all the extra work you can possibly do just so that he could get back and, you know, compete for the last couple of games. So I know this this next season coming up, man, he's going to have a, a tremendous year. He's going to do tremendous things and just watch out for him. There's a pretty uh, 
prestigious award at BC given out each year to a senior, the, the Determination Award. Obviously, you received it this year. Uh, can you describe the award, Travis, and why you believe you won it? Yeah, the, the, the Determination Award, Coach Hathley gave me this award because he felt that I had the true aspects of one of the most determinated players on the team. I believe he gave me this award because Coach Half, I think he understands how much work I put into the game, whether that's watching film or getting extra work or, you know, doing that extra little things that needed to be done so that, you know, my mind is truly confident and focused on getting W's and getting wins for the team. That's why I believe Coach Halfley gave me that award. You know, I was truly honored to accept that award. Well, it takes into account off-field, too. Uh, yeah. I guess, is there anything specific that you can relate to us that uh, you did off-field that put you in this position? I think, I don't know if my academic personnel told Coach Hav, but, you know, I, I have great relationships with my professors. You know, I go over to the house, have food, and um, sit down and talk with them. And basically, you know, just do the, the extra little things to, you know, create relationships throughout life. That's what I was truly happy about um, at BC, the opportunity just to create relationships and um, just have fun playing football. All right, Travis, when is uh, Boston College's Pro Day? Uh, The Pro Day is March 25th. That's your big day. I mean, that's your huge interview. I mean, what's the plan on that day? What do you plan to show for scouts? And what do you think uh, you have to answer, you know, March 25th? I'm definitely looking forward to that day. The first thing I want to show is my strength. I know that's first. So I'm looking to get like, you know, 17, 18 on the bench. And then the next thing is my speed. That 40-yard dash, I, I can't wait for that. Because I feel like a lot of scouts think, you know, I'm a 4-5, 4 guy. Nah, I'm a 4-4, 4-3 guy. So that's what I'm trying to uh, run at uh, my pro day. And then I also want to show them that I'm quick. Five ten five, you know. I want to get, in, I want to get in those three range. After that, you know, I'm just gonna uh, have fun and just catch some footballs and show them that I can play the slot, I can play outside, I can play running back too. Well, I hope you're gonna be able to uh, show all NFL teams that are gonna be present, scouts, that uh, you're gonna accomplish those goals. So good luck to you on that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to basically tell our listeners where they can find you on social medias, whether it's Instagram or Twitter. Go ahead. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at TravisLevy underscore 23. And then you can find me on Twitter at TravisLevy underscore error. And uh, shout out uh, Jay Black Catering. He's a person who does my uh, meal prep throughout my draft. Travis, thank you for being on with us. We really appreciate it. And once again, good luck. Thank you. Thanks again, Travis Levy. Uh, looking to make a name for himself in the postseason doings here. And uh, good luck to him during the draft process. Let's talk about the coaches first, and then we can get to an ex-coach that really rocked the league. Which one so far uh, have you been most impressed with, Alex? I would say Brian Dable to the New York Giants. Because I think he can he can cook something with that offense. 
he can make use of Saquon Barkley um, and what he was able to do like during his rookie season and take advantage of his skill set. I think there's an opportunity to develop Daniel Jones because of what Dable did, you know, in his work at Alabama and then with Josh Allen his latest pupil and he turned him into an MVP type of guy every year and we see the type of quarterback that he is and he's going to a team you know they also hired a GM that he worked with before with the Buffalo Bills so it's like a tandem thing I love Brian Dable I just think that defense was good enough and you could just keep Patrick Graham for all I care I mean, you can bring him back, and I think that defense is going to do fine. All you have to do is kind of fix the offense, you know, maybe get another receiver, fix that offensive line. I think Dable can be like an instant success in the NFC East because it's still a wide-open division. I mean, say what you want. The Cowboys had a great season, but I'm not sure that they can repeat with Mike McCarthy in 2022. So I'm looking for the Giants to improve significantly in year one not because i'm a huge like believer in daniel jones but dable can make that quarterback a lot better than what he has been the last three years yeah the the tandem is always the thing they've got to be in lockstep and joe shane was hired you know from buffalo to be the gm so then it would obviously was kind of natural for dable to get that job eberflus in chicago might have been I mean, we had talked about him and the, you know, upcoming coaches and that he was, you know, he's definitely going to be in the, in the running with some of these jobs, but I don't know if I expected him in, in Chicago, you know, I mean, he just drafted a quarterback and I guess the league is, seems like the offensive guys are a little bit more successful, especially with the younger quarterback. So I thought maybe they would go more of an offensive minded coach there. Again, the Bears do things a little bit differently. I like Eberflus. I think he's going to do a good job. I just hope they get, you know, an offensive guy in there that can kind of take Justin Fields under his wing and make give this kid the best opportunity to win because they've had such a hard time bringing in quarterbacks into that organization and I don't know if it's, you know, coming from the top or whatever. Uh, Ryan Poles from the from the Chiefs front office has taken over as the GM, but I think a lot of this stuff is coming from above the GM position. So Ryan Poles, you know, God bless him. I hope he does a, a great job there. I think he will. Uh, he's a former player, offensive lineman. I think he was on the practice squad for the Bears, so I think he knows what he's getting into as far as the, the hierarchy and so forth. I just hope he gets the opportunity to make the acquisitions that he needs to get this offense moving, to give that young quarterback a chance. Now we're, we're hearing that uh, perhaps Harbaugh is in the running for the Minnesota job. And what was your take on that? You'd think, you know, if he was going to go back to the pros, that Chicago would have been a uh, a natural. What, what do you think about him going and interviewing on National Signing Day in Minnesota? I think he's driving up his price tag right now, Lou. I mean, he took a pay cut, and now I think he's trying to convince Michigan that, hey, guys, I, I delivered what you wanted me to deliver. I beat Ohio State. I got to the... The semifinal to the college football playoff. I think he's driving up his mark. I don't think Harbaugh is set to go to Minnesota. I think it's a bluff on his part. He's talking, but I just think he would prefer to stay in Michigan for himself and his family. I'm not buying it. I'll, I'll see it when I see it. I think he could be a success in the NFL, and I think the NFL is more of his league 
because he doesn't do recruiting in, in the way that some of these coaches do recruiting. He doesn't like it. But I just I don't think he's going to go to Minnesota. Do you think uh, the Broncos are going to trade for Aaron Rodgers? Because, I mean, they basically hired his offensive coordinator in Nathaniel Hackett. So it's almost like a ploy. Like, Aaron, come to us. I mean, we're, only, <laughs> we're only a quarterback away. We hired your former offensive coordinator. Yeah, I mean, that would seem to be like the natural progression. And I guess from the, again, the outside looking in, I don't know if it was a deciding factor, but I'm sure it didn't hurt Nathaniel Hackett's case for being the Denver coach. Although we had heard that Dan Quinn was in the running there and was kind of a front runner. But, you know, they made that move. So who knows? I mean, Aaron Rodgers, and we talked about it during the preseason, during the season, they get ousted in the first round, which, you know, again, you got to believe, you know, he, that's not going to sit too well with him. And, okay, what do we do now? Do we go to Denver? Well, the roster is there. So now you've got your offensive coordinator there. Sure, why not? I mean, it makes the most sense. And the AFC West looks like it's going to get even more quarterback rich. And if that happens, wow. And speaking of the AFC West, the Raiders got their guy, so to speak. And again, it's a tandem of GM and head coach. Dave Ziegler, formerly of the New England Patriots, obviously very close ties with Josh McDaniel. One goes in, the other one follows. Obviously, McDaniels was being very, very selective. You really didn't hear his name in any of these other jobs. And I don't think he was going to take any interviews unless he thought for sure that he was going to take it. And with Ziggler going there first, I think it was just a matter of time, just ironing out some details. So now he's back in the coaching ranks. I think as far as the Raiders are concerned, that's got to be a home run. I mean, other than Harbaugh, And again, I don't know how, I guess, if he really was somebody that they were reaching out to. But, you know, McDaniels is that name that everybody was waiting for for the past few years since he kind of left the Colts at the altar. I think from my perspective, I don't know that the Raiders could have done much better. I hate this move for the Raiders. I just, I'm not a big Josh McDaniels fan. He's a great offensive coordinator. I just think he's a shitty head coach. No ifs or buts about it. I mean, there's just some guys that are just crappy head coaches Josh McDaniels does not like inspire me I don't think this is a good move for the Raiders it's like a typical move for the Raiders it's almost it seems like a home run because hey a lot of people are courting McDaniels every year and they finally convinced him to come there because they hired him like you said as a tandem with you know with the GM from the Patriots but I think it's going to blow up in their faces I think they should have hired the coach that was there that had all the players, you know, in his corner. They were building something. That wasn't a sexy move, but they went after the sexy coach. I think McDaniels quits in like two or three years. I think this is going to like blow up in their faces like it did with John Gruden. Well, it certainly could. I mean, there's no question about that. But again, you know, younger guy, sure, you know, his first job, it didn't go very well. I'm sure he learned a lot from that. You know, the Raiders organization... Again, a lot of these things, it stems from the owners. You know, it kind of goes downhill from there. You know, how stable is the ownership? How consistent are they? Are they meddling owners? Are they, you know, are they out of touch? You know, we'll talk a little bit about this, you know, when the, we talk about Flores and his situation. 
yeah, I don't know. As far as Josh McDaniels, I don't know if he's going to be a success, but I think that having gone through that experience in Denver and then that uh, I think year or two that he spent with St. Louis Rams, I think Spagnuolo was the, the head coach at that time. He probably learned a lot at that point. Now, again, the whole Colts thing does not look good. I think he's did a good job, I think, with Mac Jones. Obviously, you know, worked very well with, with Brady. So I would say give him a chance. Let's see where it goes. All right, so the bombshell comes down yesterday. I don't know, like 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon that Brian Flores is uh, launching a lawsuit versus the NFL, uh, three teams in particular, the Dolphins, who he, he just worked for, got fired from, uh, the Giants, who supposedly, I mean, if Bill Belichick was <laughs> knew how to use his cell phone, we may not have ever heard about this. Evidently, he thought he was texting with Brian Dable, but was texting with Brian Flores and congratulating him on getting the Giants job three days before Flores was in line to interview for the Giants job. Uh, and then also some things that went on with the Denver hiring process back uh, a few years ago. This is just huge. We talked about, I talked about ownership and so forth. And there's a lot of, I, I guess, say bad owners, strange, eccentric owners, billionaire, white billionaires that, you know, just kind of do what they want to do. There's no oversight. Commissioner works for them. He really can't do anything to them. So here, Brian Flores, who was a winning coach, beat Belichick a couple of times this year with Tua was evidently asked to tank games and was going to be paid for losses by the owner, Ross. There's also allegations that maybe he was kind of trying to set up a meeting with Brady before he had decided to leave New England to try to get him to come to Miami. I mean, just a lot of shady crap. I guess the first thing is, and I think we've talked about it a lot on on this show, when coaching openings come up, and we see the list of guys who immediately are getting interviews and they look like they're just to comply with the Rooney rule. Like they know who they want to hire, but since we've put these rules in that say that we need to be fair about this, is just BS, right? Now, I'm sure some of that and a lot of them are legitimate interviews, but obviously a lot of them aren't. This is nuts. And as far as Flores is concerned, I don't know if he's being a martyr. He's just being the bigger man, right? Because this definitely kills his opportunity at any job openings, you think. I don't know if any owners are going to kind of step out of line, if you would, with the league. But we saw it happen with Colin Kaepernick, company line. Oh, he's just not good enough and all this other crap. B.S., Flores won games, maybe he was a little bit of a jerk, maybe he didn't get along with everybody, but he's a good coach and should be given opportunities. This seems to have ramifications that could get pretty serious, and if they can prove that Ross was giving him incentive to lose games, was wanting to pay him to lose games, I mean, we saw it with Donald Sterling in the NBA But is the NFL ownership going to do enough? Because you still have Daniel Snyder owning the Washington football team. Oh, I'm sorry, the Commanders. This is going to get pretty serious.
they're going to cover their own asses, Lou. I mean, just like they always do. Uh, they're going to throw Brian Flores under the bus like they threw John Gruden under the bus with those emails. And I just think he's going to be the fall guy. He's never going to get an NFL head coaching job ever again. The Rooney rule doesn't work, Lou. It's just no. company's line. It's bullcrap, all right? Minority coaches, African-American coaches don't get a fair shot. Because you always see the same names, like you said. You always see, like, Jim Caldwell, Terrell Austin, like, EB. It's always the same names that never get a crack. Well, Jim Caldwell has been a head coach a couple of times, you know, a couple of stops. But it's just they're going to cover their own asses. I don't see that Stephen Ross—I mean, maybe the— he gets tampering and maybe, you know, he gets like the team gets deducted like a third or a fourth round pick or something like that in the 2022 NFL draft. But I mean, other than that, I just don't see it. Same company's line. They're like money rules. The NFL is a huge business. And why do you like in any other business out there? Why do you have to tell these people who are making a fortune that they're running their team the way they want it. Of course, they're running their company the way they want it. They don't want to comply with somebody else. They're billionaires, for God's sake. You think Jerry Jones listens to people? No. You think Daniel Snyder listens to people? No. What makes you think that Stephen Ross is going to listen to somebody? I mean, this is just, they're going to cover their own asses. I'm, I'm telling you, it's its just going to be like a hand slap. or Like the Dolphins will get you know, deducted like one of those draft picks, but it certainly won't be a first round pick. Well, the gambling aspect of this, you know, with the league embracing it, right? I mean, it's legalized and so forth, and they're in business with uh, a lot of gambling outfits. I mean, obviously, you know, Caesars, DraftKings, all of them, FanDuel, you can bet anywhere now. It used to be like taboo. You couldn't even talk about it. And the integrity of the game was sacrosanct, right? Where now, if this stuff gets proven, though, I think that's where the difference is here. On one side, you've got Ross, but then, again, these texts that, that Belichick, and this old dude that really did, you know, didn't know what he was doing with his phone, or he thought he was talking to one Brian, but it was a different Brian altogether, and you look at the texts, and it's like, oh my God. First, how the hell did Belichick already know? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and that's happened in the past. I don't know. I mean, for a league that's gone out of their way, you know, you incent teams to hire minorities. I mean, hell, the Chiefs are going to get a, a, a bonus third-round pick because Ryan Poles got hired. You have a rule that says you have to hire at least one minority. Then it was changed to two. So you, they're being told, hey, you have to do this. And that still doesn't work. And the other piece of it is, even these guys that they're hiring, every year we've got eight or nine guys that get fired. So just the whole hiring process doesn't work. I hear what you're saying, and yeah, money always rules, and billionaires get away with whatever the hell they want. This just feels different. I don't know. I, I can't really put my hand on it, but this just feels different because, again, they're coming out you know, on their helmets, things about equality, and this just hits different with me. When I saw it, it was just like, this one just feels different. We'll see what happens, but... I mean, David Culley, he was just hired to lose, right? I mean, that was the only reason they brought him in. Lou, you're a lot more optimistic than I am. But again, I don't, I don't know how it happens or do they try to settle it. Flores seems like a pretty principled guy. 
and much like Colin Kaepernick, but I think he was just being a player. But now you've got a coach, and he has direct evidence against ownership doing shady crap. Stay tuned, right? I think that's going to do it for us this week. Obviously, no games this weekend. We've got some college all-star games. Maybe we'll uh, check in with some of that stuff. And then leading up to Super Bowl week, we'll, uh, we'll, ke- we'll check in on you next week. So for Alex, I'm Lou. As always, peace.